You can grunt all you want to, but when you said you'd watch it, I even said, are you sure? All right. Okay. It's a Greek tragedy. <laughs> I, I exhibited classic hubris in thinking I was equal to the task of watching this movie. I just want to point out one thing. What? This was your idea. It was not. Hang on, hang on, hang on. No, I don't. I don't want to start off yelling. I don't want to stop. Look, I have, I have, I have a new theme. I think I can make you better. I have a theme song for this episode. I wrote a new song just for you. Really? Okay. All right. Okay. Here we go. Our theme for this particular episode. I'm sorry, Scott. Please don't be mad at me. I never wanted this film to be a UMC. I was going to keep it alone, keep it in my private stock. But you had to say you'd watch it. Now I feel like a cock. It's the unknown movie challenge. Steven Groves, The New Breed. Dear God. What have we watched? <laughs> Come on, at least the song was good. No, the song was the best part. The song was great. <laughs> Okay, it's folks, all downhill from the song. I both agree and disagree with that, folks. Welcome to the first unknown movie challenge of the new cycle. Uh, I am Jeff. Three hours behind me is Scott, and um, we are definitely talking about a quote-unquote film today. Now, before I turn this over to Scott, because Scott, I know, has a lot to say about this. Just <laughs> a real brief introduction. I found this by going down a rabbit hole. As I said in the song, this is The New Breed, written and directed by Stephen Grew. And here's a few um, short comments about Stephen Grew. In his 16 to 21 year career, he's made 200 films. This includes shorts. A lot of them are fan films. He's done stuff about Yu-Gi-Oh! and Batman and Star Wars. He made a um, Lord of the Rings style movie called The, uh, the Unexpected Race, which apparently he has actually finished remaking. There is a documentary about this guy called The Insufferable Gru, which, which um, chronicles him trying to remake this movie and trying to get both Jack Black and John Heater in it. Now, if he did this, I have no idea because I had to stop watching the movie because A, I know too many people like this guy, and B, there but for the grace of God go I because sweet prom fuck. I only watched one of his films and all I'm going to say about it as far as my review is now I understand why people enjoy the room. I actually get it now. This is one of the worst films that I have ever seen but I could not stop laughing and I got a buddy of mine to watch it. Not Scott. I want to point this out. Not Scott. Because I knew this would hurt Scott. Or I should say, I knew the, po the possibility was there to hurt Scott. But when I mentioned the film and that my other buddy had watched it, he said, what did you say, Scott? Something stupid and short-sighted that I deeply regret now. But probably, yes, exactly. probably, yeah, I didn't know what <laughs> I was in for. I honestly didn't know. I, I you listen to me. You listen to me when I give you positive suggestions, Scott. Now you know to listen to me when I say stay away. I have been chastened. 
<laughs> okay yeah you have before we get into this and before you before you you go into this i should say you have to admit i know it took you days to watch this hour-long movie <laughs> it's three days three days three days three days and i watched it twice in those three days i should tell you something <sighs> I actually watched this film twice. This also should tell you something, audience. For the first time in the history of us recording this show, I took notes. Yeah, the gimmick was I used to watch it right before we recorded. And I may get back to that because I enjoyed that viewpoint. It was always me showing up with a fistful of notes and a bunch of IMDb citations and, and dialogue transcribed to every jot and tittle. And I would do my prep, but I would show up shiny and bright and bushy-tailed, ready to record, and Jeff would roll out of bed two hours earlier and just be snapping the thing off when he sat down at the microphone. So, yeah, two very different perspectives. But Gee. here... <laughs> nice to know after decades how you feel about felt about that. I, I thought it like was interesting. Were... I thought so did I. I thought it worked perfectly. It would be boring if we both prepped or neither of us prepped. I thought the fact that one of us did and the other didn't, I thought it was entertaining. What I find most funny though is that this movie has broken you so badly it has turned you into me. <laughs> you didn't say I've got some notes. You said I've got 15 pages of notes. Do you want me to count the pages that I have? Because oh, I'll count them because I, I have a chunk. I'm sure you do. There's a chunk of this movie to talk about. This movie's and all chunk. only an hour long, folks. You understand that this movie is 57 minutes long. And mind you, the first maybe 90 minutes, the first two minutes, the quote-unquote opening credits, are absolutely nothing. But we'll get to that in a second. Oh, yeah. We will. This is, this is, but here's the thing, though, Scott. I know this caused you pain. And I know it caused me pain, too, the first time that I watched it. But here's the thing. A, I could not stop. You obviously could, but you kept going back to it. I had to keep watching it. And B, I was laughing my ass off. I'm not saying there weren't moments of uncomfortable, high-pitched, rather caning sort of giggling. It was probably more of a befuddled chuckle in the very beginning because the movie opens with pink fluid a lot of it just churning around being pink and not much else but it is very pink like someone had discovered a way to liquefy bazooka joe bubblegum or cotton candy or honey boo boo and there is a lot of it because the camera pans across pink creek for and i timed this 34 seconds that's a long time Hold your breath for that long and tell me this was a good use of anybody's time. Eventually, we dissolve to a dance major from the local community college dressed in a black t-shirt dress and party store vampire teeth and doing a slow, arthritic bump and grind that goes on for 49 seconds. A new record. Anyway, we have time to notice she wasn't too careful with the Maybelline and her eye makeup is a startling combination of Brandon Lee from The Crow and Lucille Ball from Mame. I just want to point out, by the way, that in my notes, I also took account of the um, both the pink goo and the wait, what did I call her? Hang on a second here. Oh, yeah. The goth vampire chick dancing on Mars. That's how I described it. <laughs> Even better. So now we meet Derek, an average college stupid student 
maybe a little below average since he's played by director writer Stephen Grew himself. Derek! How's it going? Good. But ominously, or hilariously, Derek is being surveilled by several of the drama kids who weren't good enough to be in the show and have to wear the black t-shirts and black jeans and just change the sets. Is that him? Yes. Tonight? Tomorrow. Prepare the others. Yes, sir. (laughs) All right, Scott. Scott, we really should, after that particular bit of dialogue, especially tonight, no, tomorrow, we really should um, shoot the elephant in the room. Um, How would you describe the, and I use the term loosely, acting in this? I would say it's a Centron mental hygiene film quality, but without that Midwestern sincerity. That's actually very polite because I was thinking these are people that neither Neil Breen nor Ed Wood would cast. Ooh, ouch. Uh, I don't know. I think certain Ed Wood stock company members would fit right into this group. You know what? You know I what? take that back. You're right. No, you're right. You're right. This is this is definitely there is more wood here than Breen. I I I will definitely give you that. But so anyway, that, they're all talking about the big test, like they're Archie and the gang chatting in the halls of Riverdale High. Did you happen to catch the name of uh, of Derek's bully, or Greg? Or okay, okay. Or, I just, I just remember, here is it. I love his his bullying. So you think you're going to do better than me on that test? I <laughs> asked the test. The test. The whole school's abuzz about this test. It, everyone's obsessed with it, it, except for one generic blonde of Derek's acquaintance who, when asked, says the following. I've been so busy with my kickboxing class that I haven't had time to study for the test. Now, I honestly don't mean to brag. This is simply to establish my bona fides. But I used to study kickboxing with Refugio Flores, the former world featherweight champion. And it was an hour, three days a week. But... That was a long time ago, and I don't know, maybe nowadays kickboxing practice involves a lot of assigned reading. Inside the class, as Jeff points out, there's like... There are seven, by the way. There are seven friends total and seven people in this class. I just wanted to point that out. A full classroom, and everybody's in like two rows. One, four, yes. Three in front, three in the back. That's important for that. That's important for the universe that we are in. Sorry to interrupt, Scott. Yep. Total of seven people sitting in a classroom made for 30. No teacher, no test, nothing's going on. It was so boring, I was actually relieved when Derek got brutally bullied by dollar store Biff Tannen, who snaps Derek's pencil in half. Bum, bum, bum. I was stunned. I, I, thought, I started singing Jeremy by Pearl Jam. <laughs> I was waiting for Derek to speak in class today, and boy, I was so happy when he did. Haha, <laughs> but we'll get to that. Outside, one of the drama kids, Japeth. Japeth. Oh, what a name. Oh. <laughs> he buttonholes Derek and asks to speak to him in private. And the very geeky Derek sees no reason not to walk off with this black-lipped stranger whose audition for Stewpot in South Pacific was grossly inadequate and whose acting hasn't seemed to improve much in the meantime. <laughs> yes, that's my metaphor, and I'm sticking with it. God, so he, stick away. He invites Derek to a gothic society meeting, insisting it's the best medieval style of architecture for people who get their Ticonderoga number twos snapped by Biff's. Remember, at first, not interested in gothic culture. Right, yeah. 
too cool for school is Derek. But uh, then someone says, no, you should. And he goes, oh, okay. It's the, the, the vampire's power of persuasion is amazing. I mean, it doesn't involve like, you know, pin spots on Lugosi's eyes, but uh, just apparently simple contradiction will do it. It could also be, though, that Derek's a bit of a puss. I'm just saying. Oh, I don't know. I, I, I kind of disagree with that. I'm not sure that's fair. He's a huge puss. I mean, he's a, he's a puss that blots out the sky. He's a he's a puss that bestrides the world like a colossus. It, it's funny that his his pussiness only seems to get ramped up when he becomes, you know, an unholy killing machine later. But. You mentioned JPEG, but don't forget his um, equally as gothic and opposable girlfriend, Vila, who was there to basically grope JPEG and sort of hiss and smile at the, the the brooding animal that is hidden beneath Derek's meek exterior. Yeah, she's uh, she's deep if she saw through that uh, that mask. Of <laughs> okay, I know you have another rant coming, and I'm sure this comes to it. I have to apologize. I have to say this right now. The moment this is the first. Now there, were, I had a lot of laughs up until this point, like the hard cuts, the karate club line. I mean, I've had a lot of laughs, but when you you started to say how Derek went to the club, when he walked, well, just when he walks up, and the people standing there with the candles going hum. Um, Funny you should mention that. There are indeed, outside the Gothic Society Clubhouse, a bunch of black-lipped nerds decked out in choir robes filched from the music department and who are trying to create a sinister sense of ritual and atmosphere by humming the word hum. Now, at first I thought they were chanting the word hump, like maybe it was Wednesday. But no, this is what it sounded like. I'm glad you could make it. We have quite the program tonight. Oh, Scott, you have done more work than I expected, and I applaud you mightily for this. Strap in, folks. I think we're giving you the full experience, and you are not prepared. If you think what you've heard so far is right, you've prepared you for what's to come, you have no clue. Uh, um, it's yeah. Well, when it comes to haunting music from a horror film, it's not exactly tubular bells. So they give Derek the hard sell on joining their group, by which I mean they trap him in an uncomfortable-looking Dutch angle as co-eds invade his personal space while carrying lit Hanukkah candles and hissing like radiators. And then we hard cut. There are a lot of hard yes. cuts. Uh, every cut is hard. Every cut hurts. <laughs> and, and this one, this one actually, this one was particularly startling because you think it's leading up to him succumbing or being overcome. However it happens, whether he's a willing... Uh, supplicant of the vampires or or an unwilling victim. Nope, nope, that might have been interesting. Can't have that. Hard cut to the next day. Everyone's wearing the same clothes as yesterday, but now they're worried about where Derek has been. His girlfriend, Kath, is called. She's stopped by his house, but he's vanished. Oh, and by the way, real fast, before you go any further, I, I, I have to say something because this is something we need to put a pin into now because this will come back later, if I may, Scott. At no point 
during the entire scene with the with the with the gothic club. I'm still going to call them that because we really don't know that they're vampires because we may have seen fangs, but all we really see is dark clothes, gothic makeup, hissing and pretentious posturing. I just want to point that out. That is all we have seen at this point. Okay. Sorry, Scott. Continue. Well, that that is a good point. You know why this will come back. Oh, yes, I do. So they're all fretting about where Derek has been until in a performance that says, this is my only credit on IMDb. One of the girls exclaims, well, speak of the devil. Subtlety is apparently expensive because they could afford none in this film. We cut to Derek, who is swatting into school, dressed exactly like the trench coat mafia from the Columbine shooting, which occurred just two years before this film was made. So, I don't know, maybe his inspiration is also something of a taste issue? I mean, it seems crass to me. But I guess I can understand that Derek, who's adopted the black lip look, wants to wear the whole costume, not just the black tee and jeans, so everyone knows he's in the show, and not just one of those losers who only gets to shift scenery or organize the prop table. He has paled his skin. He has dyed his hair. He is now a bleach blonde. He has turned into a bargain basement spike. Yeah, he was an archy looking uh, mofo before. Now he's uh, he's undergone some sort of weird transformation. People want to know what the hell's going on. But Derek hears the bell and scurries off to class because he doesn't want to be late. So I guess you can put the vampire in the geek, but you can't take the geek out of the vampire. But (laughs) but when Derek is taunted by Biff in class... He horrifies everyone, all six other students, with a burst of supernatural violence, by which I mean he kind of pushes Biff over. And girlfriend Kath uh, has had enough. She decides to immediately get to the bottom of this. So that night she takes Derek to Lover's Lane. And immediately, hang on on real fast, real fast. Sorry. Before you get to Lover's Lane, you're jumping over key things here. We must jump back re- briefly. Um, first off, hang on a second here. This is also an important point. Before Derek decides to do his slow-mo, I'm a, I'm a quote-unquote vampire entrance, when the rest of the cast is talking about him, his girlfriend says, and I quote, he said something about a gothic club a few days ago. I hope he's not into drugs or anything. Now, that is an important point. Put a pin in that because that line will come up again later as well. And also, <laughs> unfortunately, we, ju- we we cannot show it because we are an audio podcast. But there is a scene um, right after Derek has done the deed with the uh, with the bully when three of the vampires stride down the hallway to chastise him for the strength. And there's a moment when they, they it's like the camera is on them. They take three steps and each of them strike a Charlie's Angels pose. And I could not stop laughing for five minutes. I actually had to pause it there, not because I was angry, but because I was laughing so hard. Yeah, I was mostly hate pausing, but but there was some laughter. Oh, I understand, Scott. I get it. I I, I I truly get it. But that particular scene when they pop up and just boom, it's just it was just hysterical because they don't like him showing strength, and Derek doesn't like them telling him what to do because he doesn't want to be a part of that like to begin with. So again, important quote unquote plot points. Now, sorry, Lovers Lane. They pull up to Lover's Lane. Immediately, Derek gets out, walks in front of the car, and stands at the edge of the cliff. Now, in my day, and admittedly, it's been a while, this this was not how necking worked at all. <laughs> Kath apparently feels the same way, trying to lure him back to the car. 
Derek, it's cold out here. The cold doesn't bother me anymore. This furnishes the first legitimately scary moment in the, in the movie because I thought for a second he was about to break into Let It Go from Frozen. Instead, he tries to bite her, but fails when Kath pulls a crucifix. She just happened to have a huge and ornate one left over from a hammer film on her person. Again, not something I would traditionally worry about packing for a trip to make out point. So Derek takes Kath to what looks like an abandoned soup plantation and spills his guts. It seems all the traditional vampire lore, garlic, crosses, the fatal power of sunlight, is all just silly superstition and folklore, except for one rule. Can you die, Derek? Until I'm stabbed in the heart by a stake, I live forever. Also, he sparkles in sunlight, but that's just to be expected. I have to throw this in. We had a title drop before they go to the ice cream shop when um, she says, Derek says, and I quote, you don't understand. We are the new breed. You mean the Gothic Club? <laughs> oh, dear God, the dialogue. OK, so the friends. Yes, the friends. Kath wants to get their lame, annoying friends involved. Now, both Derek and I feel like this is a really bad idea, but nobody listens to us. So now it's time for the classic getting the team together scene. This involves everyone sitting in the cramped living room of some crew members' one-bedroom apartment in Toluca Lake, but a little horror movie atmosphere is provided by the decor, which is half Ikea, half stuff my brother saved from behind the assisted living facility when Nana died. <laughs> Their friends are skeptical. I can't believe you're a vampire, Derek. Come on. Well, believe it! Derek flashes his party store dentures, and apparently the power of contradiction is good enough for everyone. Kath pleads for their help, saying, we both can't do this alone, which is close enough to actual English that they seem to grasp her meaning. Derek snarls, you in? And everyone agrees. What are they in for exactly? Well, there's a hilarious steak sharpening montage, which makes it clear that not one of these theater nerds ever got a passing grade in shot class. So there's going to be a rumble between the cast and the stage crew. And as always happens when titans like these fight, it's the audience that suffers most. And remember, as they say, it's not just going to be a rumble, as Derek says, that it's going to be a bloodbath tomorrow. But to be honest, it starts rather gently, like a blood sponge bath, with some targeted assassinations by our heroes. Two of the girls exploit the vampire's natural empathy by screaming, Help! My friend's choking! One of the lady vamps runs over to assist and gets sucker punched, kicked in the gut, and staked to death. All this is happening, by the way, in broad daylight, in the middle of what appears to be the college quad, where everyone milled about at the beginning and fretted about the big test. However, I guess if the body is just going to turn to dust and blow away, there's not going to be any proof that they murdered a woman in cold blood. Except normal vampire rules don't apply, remember? This film has opted to create its own fresh lore, free of debts to long-dead writers, free of moldy old genre tropes, and most important of all, free from the tyranny of special effects. So they hook their victim under the arms and drag her off screen like a load. Okay, and, 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 there's a lot of bodies getting dragged out here. Now, going back to my earlier point, at this point in the movie, I began to think that there might not be any vampires at all, and that Derek and his friends are just going around killing the pretentious theater kids. We really haven't seen anything to prove otherwise. I just want to point that out. They may just be killing other bad actors, and as a if that's what's going on, I'm okay with it. And you may well be right. 
at this point, uh, I wasn't hoping for that to be true, but it it couldn't have gone worse if they'd chosen that path than what they actually wound up with. You're right. They're they're staking each other. Nobody nobody's deploying their fang. They're just holding the the tips of the stakes to their chests. Yeah, that's all. They're they're very accommodating victims. So they're staking the Gothic Club. Japheth starts sending new breeders after Derek, who kills the first one in the hallway outside Spanish Lab. Ah, I'm going to drive this stake through your heart. Voy a clavar esta estaca en tu corazón. Gracias. De nada. It was really very educational. Prompting his murder victim to sensibly inquire, whose side are you on anyway? Well, that's a good question. At the moment, I'm actually rooting for the Gothic Club because so far they they haven't killed anybody. At worst, they're guilty of too aggressively promoting their multi-tiered marketing scheme. And while it's annoying when your friends or relations start selling (laughs) Amway or Herbalife, it's not a capital offense in most jurisdictions. Japheth snarls, You'll never win. I'm 2,000 years old and more experienced than you ever will. Ever will what? Learn to speak English, maybe? I mean, you've had plenty of time, 2,000 years, you could have snuck in a few ESL courses. Just saying. Anyway, so we get a fight scene between Derek and Japheth, where they put on a display of spitting and growling, savagely brandishing their wax fangs and Lee press-on nails. Meanwhile, the stagehands go after the supporting cast, who prove that the one bit of surviving vampire lore this film observes... Stake through the heart kills the monster, is also pretty flexible, because they also die if you stab them in the neck, the floating rib, or the clavicle. Basically, in this universe, vampires have the survivability of hamsters. <laughs> this is a bad production of West Side Story right now. Seriously, Scott, no, I, I, I'm not going to lie. The thought struck me that I was like, like we, like you so beautifully did with Halloween. I was thinking, take any of the fight scenes in this and put the da 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 music over it. When you're a nerd, you're a nerd. Huh? Uh, <laughs> yeah, and, and you know, the sad thing is, Japheth and his followers, millennia of collective experience is no match for the humans and their half hour of stakemanship training in Kevin's living room. Derek is the dragonborn. Remember that. Derek is the dragonborn. He is the all vamp master of time, space, and dimension. Oh, that's right. That's right. I forget. He's the chosen one. So Derek and his posse wipe out the gothic club and seize the multi-purpose room that was their secret lair, which is good news for the chess club because now they can meet three times a week. With the threat neutralized, one of Derek's friends asks, So what do we do now? Derek takes Kath's hand and says, We continue to live! And leads her (laughs) off into the night. Well, okay then. Movie's over, I guess. Wasn't great, but, you know, could have been... Ah, crap. We're at minute 15. There's 45 more minutes to go. Oh, wait. No, you, you you skipped the best part of that. He says... We continue to live. They walk off into the distance while the music plays, and then the very next shot is Derek smiling evil into the camera with the rest of his quote-unquote now vampire friends. So if you believe that Derek is a vampire, 
after he said we continue living after they killed all of the vampires that he didn't like because they made him a vampire with no choice he turned all of his friends into vampires yes okay. or he convinced all of his friends to go goth one of those two things happened depending on what worldview you think this universe exists in right well whichever happened it happened off screen, so who gives a crap? Actually, if anything interesting in this movie actually occurred, it wouldn't actually occur in this movie. It would be just off screen, movie adjacent. But I think the film wants you to think. Because the supporting cast shows up dressed in black like the stagehands they killed, and kneel in front of Derek and Kath like they're taking a group photo at Christmas time. And they're doing the posy faces. They're doing the vampire. I'm either about to come or shit faces that, you know, bad vampires always get. So we know that they are officially the the pretentious goth douchebags. Right. So we're we're at the point now, what seemed like the whole movie was over. And uh, we were wrong. Were you shocked when you saw how much time had passed? Yes, I was. I was stunned Uh, too. It's every single second of this movie feels like the entire runtime of berlin alexander plots it was moving very slow but scott scott i'm sorry to interrupt this time but i have to tell you i am giving you all the points i wrote in my notes berlin alexander plots yeah <laughs> i'm so glad you said that scott that's awesome you've just made my day okay so yeah remember 15 <laughs> minutes in okay So it seems the fearless vampire killers of the first act have been corrupted by Derek's power and become the evil monsters they themselves earlier destroyed. Which, I'll admit, sounds like an interesting premise for a movie, except it all happens off-screen again. Everything. Like we said, Derek getting turned happened off-screen. That could have been because they wanted some ambiguity. I think it's just that they forgot to schedule that. Because it keeps happening. Jeff mentioned... Pretty big change. When we first see Derek, he's a redheaded dork. And then when he goes all trench coat mafia, he's, you know, got a bleach blonde dye job, which as Jeff remarked, is supposed to make him look like Spike from Buffy. Although he looks more like if Howdy Doody and Susan Powder suffered that teleportation accident from the fly. <laughs> anyway, I guess we better just face it. The the movie's still going on. So what's the plot? Well, it's pretty much the same plot. The movie basically just lapped itself. Except now our heroes are on defense. Because there's a new gang of vampire-hunting vampires in town, and they start staking Derek's friends, who take offense and stake back. But tragically, Kath is killed, and Derek is bereft, according to the heart-wrenching 60 seconds devoted to this storyline. And can I tell you, by the way, when this murder montage first played, I had absolutely no idea what was going on. I didn't realize that those two characters who we find out through dialogue had died. I didn't realize they were the ones who had died. I literally, all I saw the first time were a bunch of people, like a bunch of pale skin and one really bad wig. And I, I honestly had no clue what, what was actually happening. And I also just wanted to point out that wig. We'll put a pin on that for later as well. But anyway, yeah, yeah that's, yeah, I, I, I felt the same way. By this point, I was really, really confused, but the film didn't notice and just blundered on without me. So we're informed by a subtitle that it's now December, six months later. Oh, good. It's going to turn into a Christmas movie after all. How exciting. But six months after what? The rumble in the Gothic Club? Or was it after the fall of Derek's friends? Because presumably that took a while and didn't just happen when they were celebrating their victory with a beer and pizza party at Shakey's. 
and then they all spontaneously turned to evil when the softball team at the next table got their mojo potatoes first. But who knows? Who cares? Certainly the film doesn't. So we're free to think whatever we want. Let your headcanon run wild. Unfortunately, we still have to deal with what's on screen, so... Oh, look, a girl we don't know is walking down the street somewhere. In broad daylight. You know, a little, just a little atmosphere in your vampire movie would go a long way, but apparently our auteur didn't spring for the low-light setting on his camcorder. Anyway, she's grabbed by a man and dragged into a clean, spacious, well-lit alley, where he threatens her with what appears to be a pair of safety scissors, and lewdly fondles her kneecap while murmuring, Let's see what you got, baby woman. Oops, wait, no, I just rechecked my notes. He actually says, Let's see what you got, woman baby. I, I, I'm assuming the distinction is meaningful to him. The girl is saved by Derek, who's apparently vigilanting now, and he's about to fatally bite the would-be assailant when her incessant whining gets on Derek's last nerve, and he goes home to trash his line producer's mom's condo. And by trash, I mean he knocks some tchotchkes off a TV tray. It's pretty dramatic. The two surviving girls from the first 15-minute movie we had to sit through pin Derek to the wall and give him a good expositional talking to. It seems they lost their boyfriends just like he lost Kath. Off screen. But they're all using their powers for good and acting as each other's AA sponsors whenever they feel the thirst. So along with the rest of Vampire Canon, this film tosses out what I think is the essential conflict at the heart of the genre, that we have a human being who's the victim of some sort of supernatural murder. They arise in an undead form and they're compelled to drink the blood of their fellow humans to sustain an unholy existence that is at best a grotesque and gruesome mockery of life. Instead, when the abominations in this movie feel the urge to feed upon their own kind, they just suppress it, you know, then maybe head to Denny's and carbo load on a Grand Slam or a Moons over Miami. And by the way, those those of you who are TV fans will notice this particular scene of Derek saving the woman is basically the opening scene of the pilot of Angel. Just throwing that out there. Mm, thank you. It is. It's almost it's beat for beat. There's even some dialogue that I think almost matches, except for the yeah, yeah, baby. Let's see what you got for me, baby. But it is basically the opening scene from Angel. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> I, I hate to be pedantic, but precision in this is important to me. He didn't say, let's see what you got, baby, baby. He said, let's see what you got, woman, baby. Oh, that, okay. Sorry, sorry. He could have said, see what you got, woman. Or let's see what you got, baby. He combined them in a way that managed to make the whole thing even more disturbing than it actually was. And it was basically an assault. So, ah. Derek picks up a young woman named Amy on the street, makes a lunch date for the next day. Real fast, real fast, I apologize, but I want to point this out again because this points into something earlier. When he first meets her, she mentions that she's, A, not into gothic people, and when he says he's not like that, she says, you don't do drugs or anything like that. That's right. So that is the second time in a row where gothic culture has been equated with drug culture. I'm just saying that's how we know that Stephen Grew went to Brigham Young. <laughs> Sorry, please continue, Scott. This does occasionally lapse into the tropes of an after-school special. That's absolutely true. So Darius walking down the street and he's accosted by a vampire who speaks Italian for no reason. And appears to have just arrived from Gene Simmons' fantasy camp, based on his wig. He says, Lady Leandra wants to meet Derek and hands him a card, cautioning, not all vampires are bad. 
No, just bad actors. And Derek should come. He really should come and see what being a vampire is all about. Okay. Now I assume Lady Leandra is summoning Derek to the Holiday Inn at the Burbank Airport for one of those motivational seminars. This always happens when one agrees to sell Mary Kay cosmetics or join Satan's Dark Legion. But I repeat myself. Lady Leandra sweetens the deal by sending her disembodied hands to squeeze Derek's boobs. Also, everything was warm and leafy green, but as soon as our hero takes two steps, he's suddenly wandering through a snow-flocked suburb somewhere. So either he walked from California to Minnesota during the jump cut, or this is supposed to symbolize his wintry soul, or it's just a case of historically bad continuity. Frankly, at this point, I feel like filmmaker Stephen Grew is less concerned with entertaining the audience than trolling us. And you know what? If it's a Usenet flame war he wants, it's a Usenet flame war he's going to get. One of Eric's surviving friends, Erica, has met a new guy, which is great. But Eric isn't supportive just because she ate the last one. But she looks just like she did in the beginning, before her vampirization. So apparently the black lips and the crazy eyeliner was just a fashion statement. And any woman you see walking around in bright sunlight and navy blue slacks and a powder blue knit pullover is probably a vampire. This is perhaps the most depressing thing I learned from this film. Anyway, it somehow convinces Derek to go meet the woman who remotely rubbed his nipples. So he goes to what I'm pretty sure is the only slightly redressed gothic club set. And inside is a sparsely attended vampire rave where a new crop of stagehands ineffectively try to simulate slow motion photography while writhing and dancing. And suddenly I feel like I was watching a, a Jess Franco film and, and not the good one. And, and this goes on, the writhing, the dancing, the fake slow-mo. This goes on for one minute and 56 seconds. Again, I invite you to hold your breath for that amount of time. It'll be more entertaining. So Derek fends off a would-be succubus who wants him to put on his boogie shoes. But then he comes face to face with Lady Leandra. Clearly a business administration major with only a minor in dance, she nonetheless throws herself into Derek's seduction. But you have to ask yourself why? Because with the charm-free way Gru is playing him, Derek doesn't exactly come off as a catch. Maybe she's just a vampire completist and wants to collect the whole set. Derek rejects Leandra and the next day keeps his date with Amy. It would be hilarious if he scrubbed off the smeary mascara and showed up in the same mom jeans and oversized Henley he wore in the first scene. But he wants to make a good first impression and sticks with the school shooter ensemble. He also puts Amy at ease by tenderly confessing, well, let's just let Derek and Amy put it in their own words. I'm drawn to you. I'm flattered. You don't know me. You remind me of my last. Did you lose a girlfriend? Yes. She was killed. I'm sorry. How did it happen? She was staked. And hold for laughter. I admit, that's a good teaser. I would want to know more. And as it happens, Amy must be a journalism major because she actually asks a follow-up question. Excuse me? Derek offers to explain if she'll get in a car with him and drive a long distance to an undisclosed secondary location. To which Amy sensibly responds. All right. I trust you. That came as something of a surprise. I mean, she hasn't known him long, and she doesn't know much about him. He dresses all in black. He wears makeup like a goth. His last girlfriend died in a Baroque, bizarre, and extremely violent fashion. But he's not on drugs, so everything's fine. 
Cut to Derek's car, pulling up to Lover's Lane again, because this is where he takes all his dates when he tells him he's a vampire. I'll be honest with you. I have a dark side to me. I am a demon. At first, Amy thinks he's just an idiot. But then he carefully details the agony of his curse and how his previous girlfriend's moral refusal to feed on humanity destroyed Kath and led her to seek oblivion. Amy reacts the way anyone would. Make me one. (laughs) What? For the first and absolutely the last time. I'm kind of on Derek's side. But Derek obliges, and for the first time, some 60% of the way through this movie, we finally get to see this angry vegan vampire bite someone. So finally, okay, they're vampires. The vampirism is real. It's not just a bunch of people who fell under the sway of one psychotic. Because Amy instantly turns to the dark side, popping Party City incisors and developing the traditional case of newborn vampires' irritable bowel syndrome. And at least he kept that part of Anne Rice's magnificent vision. Because I don't remember much of it, but my favorite part of the vampire Lestat remains the very memorable passage where he's turned by another vampire. And then we get a detailed description of him pooping out each agonizing inch of his colon. Guess what, Jeff? What's that? This is only the 30-minute mark. Oh, shit. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, 30 minutes. 30 minutes. So Derek and newly vamped Amy get jumped by Leandra's minions, who kidnap Amy. Derek goes crawling back to his surviving friends from the first movie and says he needs their help with vampires. The girls are confused. They go, but we killed the other vampires. They're dead. We were there. That's how the movie ended. And Derek goes, no, now there's a whole other movie. And this one's about my new girlfriend, Amy. And his friends go off on a rant about what an absolute hypocritical piece of shit Derek is. And how many movies is this anyway? They didn't even get paid for the first one. Nevertheless, plot wins out over logic and Derek gets the team back together again. Again. And we have another steak sharpening scene, which which actually leads to the one genuine laugh this film wrung for me. And I'm, I'm still not sure if it was intentional on their part. But when everybody, especially that one girl, if you've seen the movie, you know the one I mean, is suiting up very sexily, very dramatically, and arming themselves for battle while a thunderous yet completely generic anthem plays in the background, there's one quick shot of one of the guys carefully applying black nail polish yes thank you more of that if you please let's pick a fight so it's back to the goth club to meet the new boss lame as the old boss leandra has tagged in for japeth with a crew of subcontracting vampires indistinguishable from and let's face it probably identical to the first batch Yeah, keep telling yourself that, honey. You know, as a movie lover and a movie dabbler, I have both a personal and professional interest and preference for movies that show rather than tell. But what really gets up my snorkel is when you've got movies that tell instead of show, and what they show is not what they're telling you they're showing you. That's basically this movie's logline. So as we said, Lady Leandra's goons have kidnapped Amy, and Derek is here to get her back. I'm only going to ask once, where is she? 
Where is she indeed? Where is she? Here is where I really wish we were a video podcast and I could show you where she is. Because after Derek makes his demand, the camera pants to the left and, oh, there she is, struggling between two of Lady Leandra's stagehands. Again, the movie's not without laughs. It's just every time I laugh at this film, it feels like bullying. But what really rankles my cankles is we're back in the exact same place we were at the climax of the first 15-minute mini-movie of the movie. We're back in the same location, got most of the same actors facing what I presume to be most of the same extras. The only wild card here is Lady Leandra. So it's all up to her to make this reprise worthwhile. What is she bringing to the table? What unexpected scheme does she have up her sleeve? What does she want? What is her plan? <laughs> Ah, right. Same as last time, then. Derek leapfrogs the Italian spouter, brutally teabagging him before staking the poor guy, and the fight is on! But since everyone is wearing the exact same costume, it's it's really hard to tell who's doing what to whom. I guess the ones with the stakes are the anti-vampire vampires, and on that basis, it seems like our side wins. Although I wasn't rooting for them. But there's still Leandra to deal with, and she's in unbeatable cowgirl position on top of Derek, so all hope is lost. But in an act of supreme self-sacrifice and or cowardice, or possibly boredom, Derek stakes the both of them. It's a bogo. Yay. His friends flee the approaching sound of police sirens, which herald the entrance of Banks Bourgeois as Detective Stewart. Who looks at Derek and Leandra pinned together like two butterfly specimens in a crowded lepidoptery department display case who had to double up? And he says, These two look important. Then he establishes his official credentials by telling his partner to get the mortician in here. You, you mean the coroner, right, Banks? The, the medical examiner. You don't mean the... No? Really? Okay, let's meet the mortician. Who's conducting an autopsy in a colorful nurse's smock from the Garanimals collection? She has a big-ass tape recorder, the first Eastern European accent we encounter in a movie about vampires, and certain womanly needs that appear to blossom when she examines Derek's corpse. Why is it all the good-looking ones get killed off? I wonder how many drafts screenwriter Stephen Grew put that line through before it satisfied director Stephen Grew. I'm betting just one. I'm betting he sat back, tossed down his pilot razor point pen, took a refreshing sip from his Zima, and said, I know when I've struck gold. Anyway, Dr. Horney says, I got all the fat and ugly ones. So, we've got a mortician masquerading as a medical examiner, body-shaming bodies. But here's the thing. She makes a point of telling us that Derek's body is still warm because he hasn't been dead long. I thought he'd been dead since three minutes into the movie. Is there any vampire canon that survives in this thing? Or is Gru's grand conception an immortal monster that's just like a person, except they go a little Tammy Faye with the mascara, and they could drink blood if they wanted to. They, they just personally choose not to. Got any comments on this? <laughs> You're on a roll, man. <laughs> All right. I'm letting, I'm letting you get the hate out. Go ahead. Okay. I just don't want to roll over you. The mortician pulls the stake out of Derek's heart, which causes him to live again and to mystically acquire the Italian guy's Gene Simmons wig. 
But he menaces the mortician, clearly no longer the upstanding vegan vampire we've come to know and barely tolerate. So Derek bites her, turns her. She goes through the usual ordeal, heartbreak of Halloween fangs, cramps, and moderate to severe Crohn's disease, whatever it is. Anyway, she's suffering, so Derek gives her a goblet brimming with the one fluid her unholy body now craves. Ocean Spray Cranberry Juice Cocktail. It seems to help. Hey, it works for me. Oh, and I want to point out, I actually do want to point out that the glass that he gives her, the cranberry juice cocktail, I am 99% certain that that was a Lord of the Rings Burger King glass because I had one of the exact same glasses. I shit you not. The design of the glass, even the shape of the bottom, I swear I think I saw part of the Lord of the Rings design that he was covering with his hand. That was the fucking Burger King glass. And it probably turned up as a as a prop at his later Lord of the Rings movie. That was no, that was first. That was before this one. Oh wow! Wait, think, wait. This this seemed like it had to be someone's first movie. Oh no! Oh God! No, this is this is one of his early films. But no, he'd been making films. This was done in I think two thousand and one, and yeah. he started making films in the late nineties. Oh to God! It's worse than I thought. Oh yeah. Oh, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. It, it, it's a, it's, it, it's a scary ass rabbit hole. Real fast, I do. I would like to, to, to jump back br- briefly to touch on one thing in Act Two, which was the exact same as Act One. Um, when Derek and Le- Leandra are are having their end fight, um, the, his friends have the most amazing reactions including words such as no derek no derek you will not have the best of me Uh, (laughs) uh, i may surprise you no don't worry missy you're next you're all next Uh, (laughs) you think this will stop me derek no it's that emotional with that emo- when he gets staked, one of them does say, Derek, just like that. They're talking to each other. Derek, no, it's just it's 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 a prime moment of uh Woody and acting. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. notice I, I didn't say wooden, I said Woodian. There is a difference. I did, I did notice that. It it it's not enough to be wooden in your delivery. You also have to be delivering wooden lines woodenly. <laughs> So now we now we get our first vampire sex scene. Okay, fine. Some, anything to relieve the tedium. Unfortunately, it's between Derek, the mortician, and Derek's wig. It's three long minutes of slow motion, overdressed, contactless intercourse. Or maybe this is just how vampires do it. Eschewing, kissing for grimacing, cheek rubbing, and the occasional chaste caress of your partner's elbow. And hang on, hang on. I mean, you saw her g- keep the wig from falling off, right? Oh, yeah. No, she's a trooper. I, I, yeah, I, I, I was going to say, that was hysterical when she first, uh, when they first lay down to, I guess, do the deed with, or, no, I take that back. When they lay down to dry hump, because that's really all that's going on here. It's some pure 1950s dry humping going on. But, uh, oh, yeah, there's this great moment where you, 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 you think she's being passionate, but, oh, no, she's keeping the damn wig on. Derek comes back to his cousin's friend's crash pad in Canoga Park, where he confronts his old vampire friend, Erica, who's flaked out on the couch. But you're dead, she sensibly observes. 
Derek explains the stake was removed from his chest at the morgue, and I live again. Okay, but what about Kath? And what about Erica's boyfriend? And, and all their other friends who were staked by choir, choir, choir. Derek says, their lifetime has passed. Before Erica can point out that this is a load of meretricious crap that begs the question, Derek hastily adds, who knows, and who cares? So just drop it, okay? Your sick obsession with narrative consistency is making you look like a nerd. <clears throat> Meanwhile, Detective Beef Benedict returns to get the autopsy results from Dr. Mortician. I thought his name was Chunk Bagwell, sorry. I don't know. Um, Bats Borgignon? I'm not sure. Um, I guess she has some official capacity because the, the cops call her doctor, like she's a medical examiner, while Derek and his peeps call her the mortician. But anyway, she immediately gets all vampy and tries to seduce Detective Blast Bastard. It was all a ruse, though, so she could tear out his throat and offer him early retirement. Thus ends the life of police legend detective inspector Bats Boyardee. I'll never forget the magical 47 seconds he spent in this film. Anyway, Dr. Mortician calls his partner to report a terrible accident in what now sounds like a British accent. I don't even know. She's all over the map. Junior partner arrives and treats the detective's accidental death like a murder he has to avenge. Dr. Mortician exchanges some arch dialogue, then swans off screen to run some errands. And we get dragged along. First, Aaron gets some black baby tees and a pair of black leather pants so tight, we may abandon the whole mortician angle and just go with Dr. Cameltoe. Detective Junior is suspicious of the doctor's prominent labia majora and begins to stake her out. But just then, Erica drops the dime on Derek and wants to meet with the detective. One problem. She's in Canoga Park. And he's driving around some snowy little town west of Pittsburgh. Still, he can be there in 20 minutes. Turns out they split the difference and meet in the middle in Butte, Montana, right in front of the Our Lady of the Rocky statue. I've been there. It's a nice spot. Erica wants Detective Junior to meet Derek in the park that night and enlist his help with fighting Leandra's stage crew. At least I think that's the plot. Maybe she's just setting Derek up. But anyway, the cop betrays her. However, Derek is one step ahead. Freeze! Damn you, Erica! You're under arrest! Don't you think I didn't come alone? Don't you think I didn't come alone? Again, it's so close to English that we'll call this one a gimme. Dr. Camelto autopsies a cop's ear with her teeth. By the way, she and Derek have gone full Lugosi by now and are both wearing capes. It looks as awesome with mom jeans and a t-shirt as you'd expect. Erica pulls a sword and she and Derek have a slow, lumbering, Kirk-against-the-Gorn-Captain kind of fight, livened up with the same over punch so that every strike, whether haymaker or love tap, sounds exactly the same. Meanwhile, Detective Junior shoots Dr. Mortician in the gut, then stakes her, while Erica takes advantage of the distraction to cut Derek's wig off. I mean, I'm sure it was supposed to be the whole head. I'm sure that's what they're implying, but all I saw was a flying wig. Like some drag queens got snatchy in the parking lot outside the Yukon Mining Company on Sunset Boulevard. Those are the days. Anyway, then Erica commits suicide, cautioning the cop not to remove the stake, Although, why bother? Because apparently that only works for Derek. The end. The fucking end. The what the fucking end. Fascinating, irritating? <laughs> oh, go ahead. You were, the, you were the victim here. You go ahead. All right. My fascinating, irritating is pretty much just one thing, which is fascinating and irritating. 
I don't say every film has to slavishly follow the Sid Field or Save the Cat playbook. I, I like it when someone can bring a change on either formula. But this story has the narrative cohesion of a dandelion head in a hurricane. Normally, you've got 10 minutes to introduce your hero, establish your premise, and build your world if necessary before the inciting incident occurs on page 10 and sends it all caroming off in a different direction. But in this movie, Derek becomes a vampire off screen and about minute three. And the putting the team together, stake making, training montage, which should be the second act climax, setting up the big third act confrontation, happens 10 minutes in. Then the same plot point happens 20 minutes later. And the thing is, at the 15 minute mark, the movie was over. It was a complete short student film, whatever the hell this thing was. It was over. Even the characters from this section are surprised later to find the movie is still going on. Then, 10 minutes after the same movie starts all over again, Derek has gone bad, which should have happened in the first act. But it's so late the story, there's no time, or from what I can see, inclination for a redemption arc. Or an arc of any kind. So, he just gets his head cut off. And, scene Movie's over. Don't forget to look around your seating area for any items you may have left, and thank you for accompanying Derek on his personal journey. His pointless, meaningless, endless personal journey. Also, I have questions. Yes, this movie tosses every bit of entertaining but mildly expensive bit of vampire lore, except when it was convenient for the auteur telling this particular tale. But even the bits we get are wildly internally inconsistent. Pulling the stake out of a vampire restores him to life. Oh, okay, fair enough. That's something seen in other vampire movies. But in this film, it only works on Derek, not any other vampire. Two, Derek goes through the whole movie, or movies, like we said, there's at least three separate ones fighting for supremacy here, killing no one but his fellow vampires. But Lady Leandra bites him, and he suddenly breaks bad because, as he explicitly says, her blood is now flowing through his veins. Okay, but when Japheth bit him at the beginning and bid him go and kill, Derek just said, No, I don't wanna. I'm a vegan. So was Japheth a secret puss? Not so secret, actually, if you saw his fight scenes. So what did I learn from this movie? I mean, all the wrong things. I, I thought it was a an absolute tyro novice first time cherry popping effort. And I find that's not the case. I guess the only lesson is if you're, if you're going to break bad and it's not going to be a slow, interesting study of one person's moral decay, but just a jump cut in a wig, then I guess just go instant Heisenberg and spare us the next 45 minutes and two more plots. You're just going to drop like a kid who's bored with his new toys two days after Christmas. And look, I get it. A certain amount of this is maybe sour grapes. I We all start from the same place. No experience. Your only knowledge secondhand or gleaned from books. That's why you learn to write screenplays by writing screenplays. A ton of them. You know, I did. I was naive enough at the beginning to think, oh, hey, these might get produced. No, of course they didn't. But they did what, unbeknownst to me, or what I only realized later, they were designed to do. Took me to film school, served as a calling card, so later... A producer looking for a writer could flip through one and say, well, this guy seems to have a basic grasp of the structure and the 
content isn't complete gibberish, let's throw them at this piece of shit script and see what happens. However, while that's a well-trodden route, that's that's not the path to becoming a name brand screenwriter, to becoming a visionary and a tour, or even someone like Robert Town or Patty Shayevsky, you know, people who have singular visions in their writing. What I described is how you become a script doctor. That's how you get called in to work on a troubled screenplay for a week or two, or sometimes you wind up writing the whole thing in a trailer on set while they're shooting. But that's not how you conceive of an idea like Network like we talked about last time and shepherded through the studio process, somehow with the initial genius of the script remaining intact, that rarely happens, especially in film. I always remember a line from Ira Levin's thriller Death Trap, which ran for years on Broadway. A blocked playwright is reading a new play by a protege and is depressed by its brilliance. At one point complaining, it's so good it couldn't even be ruined by a gifted director. So, in some ways, Stephen Grew has shown me up. He had an idea, terrible, terrible idea, and he brought it to life. You know, when I have work, I, I work on other people's ideas. What I'm not doing is bringing my vision to life. I, I have sold several original scripts from pitches that were bought but never made. And one, just one, that I pitched to a producer, but they hired me to write the screenplay, and it was produced and released, and I've never seen it. And I probably never will. But Grew, damn him wrote, directed, and starred in this thing. And, and he wasn't alone. He had people who believed in him, or at least accomplices. You know, like Snow White, all of his little woodland friends came running to, to help him. But if one of them was truly his friend, they would have taken him aside, gently whispered the words, second draft, in his ear, and softly punched him in the nuts for us. Of course, the scary thing the only scary thing in this movie is the possibility that this was like the 10th draft and that he'd been working on it for years and years and years and it was a dream project. And, you know, it does have the feel of an idea he first got in high school. And then he suddenly decided, now, this script can't possibly get any more perfect. We must capture lightning in a bottle now. And there it is. I have nothing more to say. Are you spent? And not in a good way. Mm -hmm. <laughs> All right. Well, the fascinating thing for me is, honestly, that this movie made me laugh as much as it did. This film should be pissing me off. It is absolutely horrible. I understand the pain that you voluntarily went through, but I completely get it. it is, but for this one makes me laugh. And normally, like, films... <clears throat> that are considered bad that I enjoy, I don't think are bad films. Like, I do not think Grease 2 is a bad film. I don't. I don't give a shit what you say. I do not think it is, it is inherently a bad film. Wait, 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 wait. Hang on. I know how you feel about this particular issue, and I have never, ever said that Grease 2 is inherently a bad film. It's not. It took a lot of work. This film, on the other hand, New Breed, is guilty of all the sins of all the inns. Inherently, is, intrinsically, in essence. All the ends. All the ends. It's just, it's a bad film. Bad film. Bad. But I could not stop watching it except to pause it for laughing. Maybe it's because, again, for finding out about him, maybe it's because I know people like him. Maybe it's because I've been in shows like this. I can't believe Chupacabra was this bad. Oh, it was not. Oh, God, no. Oh, no, 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 no.
No, 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 no. No, the theater people that we had in Chupacabra actually knew how to act. That would have made a the, big difference in this movie. Uh, just, uh, just, uh, 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 okay, wait, wait, wait. You know, no, it would not have made a big difference because they would still have had to say those words. Yes, yes, yes. But no, I'm, I'm truly fascinated by... The, just, the, just the fact that I am able, I can actually say I didn't enjoy this film, but I enjoyed this film, and it's a very, very weird feeling. This is even weirder than Bo is Afraid. You know, I mean, when we're talking about Bo is Afraid, I said there's a lot that I liked about it, there's a lot that I hate about it. This is not the same thing, but it, but it's it's the same emotions. <laughs> And it's weird. I should not have had as much fun as I did watching the film, and I am forever ashamed by that. And I will live with my shame gladly. And the irritating thing is that we have now reached the length of the film, and we are done. No theme. Goodbye. See ya.